0: All right, God is good all the time. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, so please stand with me. 1 Corinthians six twelve through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but has also raised us up through his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Don't you know? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let's look to the Lord. Father, we come to this passage, and it is a grave passage. It is very, very serious passage, one we must look to and must take the heart and and mind and understand what holiness is and who the Holy One is and why we cannot play in the world's pit. We have to cling to Christ and bring glory to Him in our life, in our hearts, in our minds, and in our bodies. So work in us. Give us wisdom Help us grasp the text. Help us understand how to live it out. Help us bring glory to God. For we pray in the only name that saves, the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. In the beginning, God took some time to teach Adam certain things. And we read that passage, and that was an important passage to read. But he took some time to teach Adam certain things. Uh forming him from the dust of the ground, breathing into him the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. So he's alive, he's alert, he's watching, and then God planted a garden in Eden. And Adam saw him plant the garden. God is teaching him. He placed Adam in in Eden, and Adam saw every living plant that God placed there. There. For him to appreciate. And then it says that God commented to his triune self. Okay, He's having an inter-Trinitarian conversation. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good. I will make him a counterpart who will complete him. But God knew that man was not quite ready for a wife yet. Adam needed to discover some important lessons about himself. He needed to see that he was incomplete and that he needed a counterpart to make him whole. And so God gives him a lesson. And it's really beautiful. So God all brought all the various birds of the sky and all the beasts of the field and all the creeping things of the earth to Adam for him to name them. And as Adam is naming the animals, come he observed, they all have a counterpart. Every one of them have a counterpart. There's a male and female in every bird species and every land species and every one. But Adam did not have a counterpart. And he was not complete. He had to learn that lesson. He had no partner. To make him whole. And then God some, did something that he had not done with any of the animals. They had all come from the dust. Adam was unique in coming from the dust and God breathing in him his breath, the breath of life. That was unique. But Eve was not taken from the dust. Eve was taken from Adam. There would be a biological unity with his wife, that was deeper and stronger and more intricate and more beautiful than any other earthly relationship ever between man and wife, man and woman. More intricate than any other relationship. He would be bound to her as deeply as he is bound to himself. That was by design. God designed it. And God designed it that he had to take something from Adam away from Adam before he could make Adam whole. It was a lesson he needed to learn as well. Adam had to lose something to gain wholeness. Isn't that interesting? Part of Adam was taken from Adam and fused by God to make his completer. To love his wife would be in reality loving himself she is so intimately connected with him and to be intimate with his wife would be in reality be in one flesh one identity and they would truly be whole and when they are one is when he is fully whole what was taken is with him again in a better way so this is what god intended for marriage a husband and wife Bound together to be one flesh, one identity, one beautiful wholeness. That is the work of God. Marriages, Marriage is God's work. And just as he did this miracle to create Eve, when he brings someone into marriage, God works and makes them one. A deep relationship. God does the work. That is the work of God in marriage. And when God presents at the wedding ceremony and God presents his this man with his bride and he makes them one in Christian marriage, they become one flesh just as Adam and Eve did. Marriage is the work of God. Let me just read a couple of those verses again. The Lord God form, fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man and the man said, this is now bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she's taken out a man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, cleave to his wife. And they'll become one flesh. And what God made was beautiful and perfect and ennobling and enriching and elevating It was perfect, and they were perfect, and they were whole. That's what God did. And if you don't understand how beautiful and elevating God intended marriage to be be between a man and a woman, what it was designed, if you don't understand that, you'll never really grasp how perverse and how evil and how shameful and how degrading and how destructive immorality is there are many today even within the realm of Christendom who will defend immoral relations outside the realm of marriage between a man and a woman I ran across many liberal chaplains in the air force who would defend all sorts of immoral behavior with the caveat as long as people love each other it's okay but what I say is that immorality proves this that it's not love That is lust, that is taking, that is stealing, that is using, that is devouring, that is corrupting, that is destroying. At Corinth, the prostitute capital of the ancient world, Corinth, there was very little shame in society about immorality. There's very little shame in our society today about immorality. The temple of Aphrodite... Was so rich it owned a thousand temple slaves. Okay, those are costly. And they were dedicated by both men and women to these were given to the the, uh, temple to be their slaves, dedicated. And these are temple prostitutes. That's what they were. The city was crowded with people. And the city of Corinth grew rich on prostitution. The money came in. The sea captains, the visiting merchants, and the wealthy squandered their money freely at the temple brothels. Those who lived in Corinth had no qualms about the practice of prostitution. It was a major foundation of Corinth's wealth. It brought money into the city. And the Christians had broken with practices like that when they came to Christ. But some were finding their way, drawn back into that behavior. And they were justifying it. They were justifying their behavior. And the church was tolerating it. And now Paul confronts it. That's what this chapter is. He confronts it. No, first of all. The Corinthian rationale defending immorality. The Corinthian rationale, Corinthian Christians' rationale defending immorality. And it's the misuse of liberty and the bodily appetites. They misuse both these ideas. It's apparent that the delegation from the household of Chloe related to Paul a lot of information about what was going on at Corinth, that there were people within the church of Corinth Defending the practice of immorality, uh, defending the practice of visiting the temple of Aphrodite, defending the practice of indulging in gross sins of the flesh. And they apparently shared with Paul the mottos that they were using to defend this. Uh, And so note first, the misconstruing not being under the law. That was one of their mottos. All things are lawful for me. That's the motto. All things are lawful for me, all things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are profitable, beneficial, helpful. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but I will not be mastered by any. So the first motto was shot, was was thrown at Paul himself, really, all things are lawful, because they remember Paul teaching that the Christian is not under the law. He's under grace. Paul had taught them, no doubt, that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul had taught that, no doubt he had taught that, that they were free from the law. So they come up with this motto, all things are lawful. And what they meant was, I can do anything I want, anything. Being free from the law as a means of earning salvation or as a means of meriting heaven is one thing, but being lawless and perverse is something totally different. And Paul counters their motto with two of his own, two important principles that must inform all Christian liberty. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. There are behaviors that must be avoided because they're not beneficial They're not helpful, they're not uh, enriching, they're not ennobling, they're not elevating, but rather the opposite. They're destructive, they're degrading, they're demeaning. They're not profitable because they conflict with God's design. They're not profitable because they deny the essential oneness in marriage and will destroy it. There is a goal that God has for every Christian. For every Christian. To conform them to the image of Christ. Immorality isn't helpful for that. You understand that? Doesn't go that direction. Any behavior that does not lead to becoming more like Christ is not profitable, is not beneficial, is not enriching, and it doesn't assist in your sanctification. It must be rejected at once and always forever. Must be. Paul continues on with the second principle, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. That applies to all kinds of things, right? I mean, they're gamers, man, that's all they do. They're mastered by it. You, you understand, this principle applies to all kinds of things, but it applies here too. Paul knows that certain behaviors and practices enslave people. Immorality is such a practice. Literally and spiritually. There are a thousand slaves to immorality. They're not free to leave. They're slaves up there. But immorality becomes a slave master that is most brutal and most cruel. So the Corinthians were misconstruing not being under the law. And Paul calls them up short for it. you You can't twist truth this way, buddy. You can't do it because not everything is beneficial and some things will make a slave of you and you have to avoid it. And so that's his first motto he deals with. Secondly, misapplying bodily appetites. Verse 13, food is for the stomach, the stomach's for food, but God will do away with both of them. And Paul says, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the lord is for the body now there's a there's a debate among scholars where the motto of the corinthians uh begins and ends well they they don't debate where it begins but they debate where it ends um and to me it's very very some of them say food is for the stomach stomach's for food and then it ends but no it really doesn't it continues Food is for the stomach, stomach's for food, but God will do away with both. That's really reflecting Greek background, Greek culture, Greek philosophy to say that. And that's really, the longer quote is probably correct. So, food is for the stomach, stomach's for food, but God will do away with both of them. Um, Wait a second, that's not true. God's not going to do away with both of them. Um, So, We'll just, leave, we'll just talk about that for a minute. The idea in the statement is, this is where they're going with it. The desire for food is just a bodily appetite. Okay? You have an appetite, you, you, you fulfill it. It's just a bodily appetite. It has no eternal relevance. It has no lasting meaning. There are other bodily appetites that function the same way. And it's just an appetite. You just meet the, meet the appetite and it means nothing. Is the idea. And after all, God's going to do away with them anyway. And you'll just be pure spirit somewhere floating around and it won't matter. Well, the Corinthians are all wrong about the same. All portrayals of the resurrection body include food, by the way. So God's not going to destroy that. Even Jesus, in his resurrected body, ate food with his disciples. Paul did not spend time debunking their food heresy. He went straight to the heart of their so-called justification for immorality. Their thesis is the body is no importance. It's going to perish, so it doesn't matter what you do with it. That's their thesis. They're still under this influence of human wisdom, Greek philosophy. There was a Greek proverb saying, the body is a tomb. That's all it is. It's a tomb. Greek Philosopher Epictetus said, I'm a poor shackled soul to a corpse. It's just the soul needs to be freed. To the Greeks, the important thing was the soul, the spirit of man. To them, the body was irrelevant. To them, if the soul was all important, what they did with the body doesn't matter. Doesn't care. It's irrelevant. What harm is there just letting the bodily appetites be sated? Paul says, How wrong you are. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. God made it as the outward aspect of His image. And it was not made for immorality, it was made for the Lord. Did you know that? Your body was made for the Lord. It was made to image him. That's why you have one. It was made to bring glory to him. It was made to be the vehicle of praise to him. It was made to exercise dominion under him and for him on the earth. And the body was not made by God for fornication, but to reflect a likeness to himself by following his ways. Oh, no, you can't say the body doesn't matter. No, no, you can't say that. Immorality is rebellion against God's design and God's purpose for the body. A body that was designed to be brought to completion in marriage. A man to a woman making one whole. It's a horrendous violation to mimic marriage by an immoral union with a person. Immorality is against the creator's design. The body wasn't made for that. Now, let me just give you a simple illustration and not so deep and dark. Okay, here. I remember years ago, many years ago now, I had these prized extra-long screwdrivers. And they were being used as stir sticks for mixing paint. Somebody in my house was doing that. Well, it, it did work for that, but it wasn't its design purpose. Okay. It's not was designed. The paint gums up the ends. It gets paint all over the handle. They begin to look terrible, and sooner or later, you're going to discard them. Right? God made the body to be for His glory, not for any other purpose. For His glory, not to be employed for some low purpose, not at all. The Corinthian rationale of defending immorality by misuse of liberty and misuse of this bodily appetite argument is utterly undone and refuted by Paul. Note secondly, the Christian relationship demands holiness. Immorality is incompatible with union with Christ. I think everybody would agree with that, but it's true. Not only was the Corinthian rationale utterly wrong and worldly and against God's design for their bodies, it's utterly wrong and incompatible with being in the body of Christ. Christians are in union with the Holy One of God, the very one who went to the cross to save them, you're in union with. And there's a number of observations we'll make. Nope. First, the glorious reality of being members of Christ's body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but also raised us up through his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't you know your bodies, your physical bodies in which your soul dwells, are members of Christ's body through his resurrection and ascension into heaven? The head is in heaven and you're part of his body and your body is a part of that body. Christ is the head. We're members, parts of his body. We're in union with the head. Jesus Christ, we are his arms and his legs and his mouth and his feet and his hands on the earth. We're a part of his body. Your body's in union with him. And nothing you do with your body is solely your own. Nothing you do with your body only affects you. That's not true. It affects the body of Christ. Also, your physical body, because it's in union with Jesus Christ as the head, you come under his care. Your body, yourself, comes under his direct leadership, his direct authority. It is gracious reality that we are members of Christ's body. Thus, because he's the head, like the head cares for the rest of the body, the brain makes sure the body's needs are met. He cares for us. He (laughs) provides for us. He nourishes us. He cherishes us. And he has the right to direct our lives for his purposes. He's the head of the body. let that's secondly. The grievous reality of being joined to the body of a prostitute by immorality. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to the prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. The Corinthian Christians, by actually practicing such a vile union with temple prostitutes, they're polluting the members of the body of Christ themselves, and they're defiling those who belong to Christ in the body. And they had no right to, to do such thing. Christian You're in union with Christ. You must not forget that. You're in union with Christ. And then if you're in union with Christ, you become in union with a prostitute or any other defiled person outside the design, God's design for marriage. What an awful thing that is. Christians, Paul says, would you defile by your actions what Christ has cleansed at great cost? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be, he says. Such behavior mocks the beauty and the loveliness of God's institution of marriage. It belittles a union of holiness and companionship and chooses the lie of merely fulfilling a bodily appetite. That's a lie. Note thirdly the gross reality of portraying Christ in connection with immorality. You're in the body of Christ. You're connected to him. Verse 17, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. You're in union with Christ. Here, really, when the implications are understood, this is the saddest verse in this whole entire section by what it implies, that the Christian, by such behavior, paints an evil, gross, evil picture that the devils rejoice in. It's something born of hell and blasphemous. When a Christian who's in union with Jesus Christ willingly joins himself with some evil, vile person by his own decision, he is portraying a picture of Christ that is connected to fornication. That is a lie. You cannot do that. It is a lie about Christ. That such a picture should never happen. It's, it's only a picture. You cannot contaminate Christ. You understand it, but you can paint a picture that devils love. And a picture like that should never be made. The Christian relationship with His Lord demands holiness and immorality is utterly incompatible with union in jesus christ no thirdly the christian responsibility to depart from immorality to depart from it flee immorality every other sin that a man commits is outside the body but the immoral man sins against his own body you should flee it some sins you must fight if you're going to win, but immorality is best dealt with by running. Flee. Some things you stand your ground. Some things you don't give the ground any opportunity to know. You. You're out of there. And this is the sin, immorality. Note the command. Uh, next slide, the command. Flee immorality. Flee. I know Christians are often accused of sheltering their children from the world. You know that? Overly protecting them, placing them in a cocoon rather than allowing them to know what the world is all about. Oh, how blessed to have parents love you like that. Oh, how blessed. What a blessing. Parents know that evil lurks and seeks to destroy their children. They know that. What a blessing to have parents like that. The evil lurks on their phones, the evil lurks on their televisions, the evil lurks in their public schools, in their school board meetings, in their libraries, in their textbooks, and in their teachers, and everywhere else. Paul says, not only to children, but adults flee immorality. Flee. This is a present active imperative from Fugo. Now... What's the meaning of Fugo? Get out and dodge is what it means. Run. Seek safety by flight. Run and do not look back. Do not be Lot's wife when you look back. Escape to save your life. Flee fornication, whatever it takes to get away from it. Break a relationship, quit the job, move from your location, go to a safer place, chuck your phone, seek safety by flight transfer to a different school a different work location whatever it takes whatever it takes flee that is a command it has to be obeyed. and if you don't it sets yourself up for a fall and a fall will destroy your family defame your god decimate yourself and delight the demons Christian responsibility to depart from immorality. The command. second is the caution. And we want to just pay a little attention here. There's, we could go for hours in what the scholars say this means. But the caution is immorality contaminates deeper than other sins. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. The sexual act outside the bonds of marriage has a deeper die than other sins. For instance, take the sin of gossip. A person may speak some gossip, an innuendo, misrepresent a person or a friend, and forget all about it, and it will never once come back to his mind it ever again in his whole life unless someone brings it up to him. Right? But a man who violates his wedding vows to an act of fornication has damaged himself far more deeply. He has sinned against his own body, making his body an instrument of evil and pollution. That's what he's done. It has undone him and damaged him deeply. Can he be forgiven and cleansed? Yes, but there's scars left. There's also another way to see this damage. In marriage, the man has become one with his wife through the glorious wedded union. They are one flesh, one whole body. Ephesians 5 commands the husband to love his wife as his own body. Let me just read a few verses. Husbands, love your wife. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So this sinning against your own body is also a horrible sin against your spouse, a rejection of your oneness, a pollution of your union, a defiling what was once holy before the Lord. So Paul says, flee immorality. Flee it. Cling to your bride. Never let her go. Never endanger your union. Never defile your love for her. The immoral man sins against his own body. Fourth, the Christian reality of being God's temple dictates holiness. The point of a temple is to bring acceptable sacrifices that God approves of that are holy and that he will be worshipped and exalted. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem had rigid rules about the kind of animals that were permitted to be sacrificed and how they must be sacrificed to prevent contamination or defilement or uncleanness. Holiness was the first consideration of approaching a holy God. A Christian, that is his body, is a holy temple of the Lord. His body. A body in which the Holy Spirit resides. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god if you're a christian this body is god's temple just as the as the temple of solomon was entered into by the glory cloud of the Shekinah, and just as it then dwelt in the Holy of Holies above the mercy seat between the two golden cherubim, God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. So the body of the Christian is the temple of God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And here Paul calls the body of the believer the temple. He uses the word naas. Naas means The sanctuary, it means the holy of holies. Your body is not some temple complex. Your body is the inner sanctuary of God, the holy of holies, where God dwells. The na'as. Holiness is demanded of a believer as God's temple, a sanctuary of God's Holy Spirit. Friend, it's not your body anymore doesn't belong to you anymore. It's his. When a Christian commits immorality, he commits immorality in God's holy of holies before God's face. And he sins against what belongs to God, not himself. Note the fact. The Christian doesn't belong to himself. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You don't belong to you. What, I mean, you could ask a lot of, this this statement, you don't belong to you. Your body doesn't belong to you. What right do you have to determine what your body will do? Only God has that right. It belongs to him. You're not sovereign over the rights of your body. God is. The body of the believer belongs to him. You don't, you don't have the right to tell God how many kids you're going to have. Did you know that? I, I don't know if you knew that. You don't have the right to tell God you're not going to have any kids. Your body belongs to him. You can say, I'm going to have 14 kids. It's not yours to choose that. I'm not going to have it's, any kids at all. It's not yours to choose that. You don't have that right. God does. There are a lot of things a Christian should relook at because the body belongs to the Lord. He should look at his spare time and his hobbies, his friendship, his priorities. Why? Because he doesn't belong to himself. He belongs to the Lord. That's the fact. Note secondly, the price. The price. You have been bought with a price. Unless you can pay the price that was paid for you, you don't, you, you don't own yourself. God's claim of your body is exceedingly serious. Did you know that? He paid for it. Not only did he make it, but he then he paid for it. You've been bought with a price, exceeding great price. First Peter 1 says this, knowing that you were... Not redeemed, not purchased with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The next slide should be up there. The price that was paid for God's ownership rights over your body was paid at Calvary, friends. Wasn't that enough a payment for him to exercise rights over you? Wasn't that enough? Does it take more? He has ownership over you. So we see the fact and we see the price, not thirdly, the duty. You're obligated to bring God glory. Glory. Therefore glorify God in your body. Does the body matter to God? It does. Your body, your entire body, your being belongs to him. And it's to be used for his design, his purposes, for bringing him glory. Let's put this all together. The Corinthian rationale defending immorality, they misuse the misuse of liberty and bodily appetites. They had slogans I'm free. All things are lawful. I can do anything I want. Paul says, No, you're not. Not everything's profitable. Not everything's beneficial. A lot of things are against the purpose God has for you. You're more. It's, you're more than just an appetite. Your body is—it belongs to the Lord too. It's His. And the Christian relationship demands holiness. Immorality is incompatible in being with union with Christ. You're in union with the Holy One, with Jesus Christ, with the One who died for you with the one who shed blood for you, you're in union with him, the one who knew no sin and took all your sin on himself and you're going to embrace sin in union with him? This is not appropriate. The Christian responsibility is to flee, to run, to part. And the Christian reality of being God's temple dictates holiness. Your body is a na'as, an inner sanctum, a holy of holies. God made intimate union to be celebrated and enjoyed in the holy institution of marriage. In that union, God makes them one, one flesh. In that union, God takes delight. In that union, God is glorified. The Corinthians needed correction so that they would not destroy themselves, so that they would not defame God's holy name, or they would not defile God's holy temple. For fornication or immorality is a repudiation of God's work in marriage. It is a rejection of the Creator. It is a denial of the Lordship of Christ. It is a defilement to the very residence of the Holy Spirit. It is an evidence that one has rejected the privilege of being God's image to and prefer to live like a beast. You understand? Paul says flee fornication. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been given clear instructions. Very simple, and in, 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 the, in the end, it's very simple, flee fornication. That's the thesis, that's the main thing we need to take away, flee it. It's not a part of us, it's not for us, it's against us, it'll destroy us, it'll defame the Lord, It'll it'll defile the holy temple of God. We are made for so much better. We are made for God. We are made for beauty. We are made to be one in marriage. Beautiful, whole, complete, in union. Made by God, established by God, perfected by God. Lord, keep us from sin. Keep us from immorality. Keep us from where it's everywhere around us. Keep us in a cocoon, if necessary, to keep us holy. Whatever it takes to be holy, yours. Work in us, Lord. Give us a heart for holiness and a hatred of our own frailty toward immorality. May we reject it in our hearts and our minds and our lives and with our bodies reject it that sin for we pray in the only name that saves the name of jesus amen heavenly father we are yours and christ has won the victory and we belong to him oh help us never to give the devil an entrance into our heart our life our mind help us be true to our lord Help us arise and live for him by faith and obedience and valor and trust. Help us, oh God, to be yours, totally, wholly, completely yours. For we pray in the only name that saves, the name of Jesus, Amen. amen.